Good morning, good afternoon, and thank you to everybody to join us in this webinar called Real Property Commercial Lease and COVID-19, which is the CMS District Stock number four. Um, well, as, as the title suggests, um, and as everybody knows, the COVID-19 disease has caused a great impact in almost every aspect of human affairs, uh, causing a great effects in our economy, health systems, etc. Um, one of those effects are the lockdowns, which is one of the main health measures uh, used by governments to deal with the pandemic. Uh, as everybody knows, uh, the effect of the lockdowns is to impede the free movement of people of good and goods, uh, but also as a side effect, is, uh, it has prevented the use of commercial premises or, or offices and buildings. So uh, the main problem that this situation creates is that even if the, the offices cannot be used, tenants, generally speaking, may be still obliged to pay the rent. And uh, on the other hand, landlords may be still obliged to pay mortgages, maintenance, maintenance expenses, etc. So the question is how to deal with the lease contract, even if the, the, the office, the building cannot be used for the um, for the goal uh, that was um, took into consideration by the parties at the time of they agreed the lease contract. So uh, in this webinar, we will give a free uh, a brief overview in a roundtable format on the effect of mandatory lockdowns on commercial buildings and offices, uh, explaining the restrictions or impediments to the use of how the, that impediments raise different questions about how the situation can be handled from the point of view of the tenant and from the point of view uh, of, the, um, of the landlord. Today, our speakers that will discuss this issue will be uh, Ernesto Vargas, who is a professor of private law at University of Chile and a PhD candidate uh, uh, of University College of London. Daniel Drummond Bassington, from uh, partner of CMA UK, uh, Chantal Mertens, advocate at CMS Netherlands, Jack Simhon, uh, who is partner at CMS Colombia, and myself, Rodrigo Campero, uh, partner at CMS Chile. We will start with a, a brief uh, conceptual introduction of the, of the topic. We will be made by Ernesto Vargas, um, and afterwards uh, we will write some questions that will be discussed by the speakers in this uh, roundtable format. Please, everybody is invited to make questions to us. For, for that, the application has a question box or chat box where you can write your questions and then uh, the organization will pass to us the question to, to answer them. Or if, if you leave your contact, we can, you can, we can answer your questions by reading. So everybody's invited to, to participate in, in this discussion. Um, so Ernesto, maybe you can you can now uh, explain explain your introduction about the topic and 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 how how this matter has been addressed in 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 the different jurisdictions from a comparative law perspective. Thank you very much, Rodrigo, and good morning or good afternoon to all, depending on where you are. Before I start, I want to thank CMS for inviting me to this webinar. 
The problem addressed by this talk is not only a pressing challenge for landlords and tenants all over the world, but also is a very interesting subject from a comparative legal perspective. The relevant context to address this problem is that the COVID crisis has turned the economy into something that somehow resembles the game of the musical chairs. The measures put in place to face the pandemic have created interruptions on supply and payment chains that to different degrees might affect anyone. When the money stops flowing, this is when the music comes to an end, someone will necessarily suffer a loss. There are different rationalities that can underpin the location of such loss. The first is resorting to the classical legal doctrines that put the risk of unexpected circumstances on one of the parties to the transaction. The debtor is either liberated or she's subject to full enforcement. According to a second view, based on efficiency criteria typically put forward by the law and economics movement, the loss should be allocated not to one of these parties, but to the party that can bear it at the lowest cost. A third option, underpinned by a moral view of contracts that sees this as a shared enterprise, suggests that parties should also share the burden. And finally, a last possibility is allocating the burden to the state by reshuffling public spending and spreading the loss among current and future taxpayers. During this crisis, we have seen elements of all these four solutions, and we know from experience the kind of challenges each of them entail. However, when it comes to commercial real estate leases, these difficulties take an special dimension already mentioned by Rodrigo. Different to residential leases, which ability to serve as dwellings is not affected by the crisis, commercial premises are led with the purpose of conducting a lucrative activity on it. And this activity can result substantially affected by the pandemic. On one hand, some measures might directly prohibit tenants to conduct their business in the relevant premises. On the other, even tenants not directly affected by this restriction might not be able to develop their trade in practice due to the aggregate effect of other health measures. However, in none of these cases, the tenant's obligations to pay the rent becomes legally impossible. Across jurisdictions, the most widespread policy adopted to address the situation has been the enactment of special legislation that either impose a moratoria on tenants' payments obligations or suspends proceedings that might lead to evictions. There is no doubt that the practical impact of such measure has provided meaningful relief for tenants, as terminating the lease on the grounds of default is normally the strongest right that any legal system provides to the landlord. However, things are not that simple. On one side, none of these emergency acts extinguishes the tenant's debt. Thus, once the moratoria comes to an end, the rent becomes due. And therefore, some have announced that the second wave of the COVID will also bring a wave of evictions. And it's foreseeable that this will be in a context of a real estate market not strong enough to fill up all vacancies. On the other hand, the moratoria only shifts the burden of the lease from the tenant to the landlord, based on the assumption that the latter is always in a better position to support the loss, which might of course not be the case. Due to these limitations of moratoria strategies, it does not come as a surprise that many landlords and tenants have reached special deals to share some of the costs involved in the pandemic. However, these direct dealings are only a viable solution for cases in which the parties have joint financial positions 
which are strong enough to endure the crisis and have previously built enough trust to do so. For the rest, if the current situation continues, the economic impact of the crisis will call for further solutions. Unless governments pour massive amounts of money into the economy to cover these losses, finding these solutions will most likely trigger the broader machinery of the legal system. As a matter of fact, in many jurisdictions, there are ongoing discussions regarding the general doctrines that might be used to address these problems. In civilian jurisdictions, notably in Germany, it has been argued that courts might resort to some general doctrines enabling them to review and adjust contracts. But there is no clarity as to the threshold that would engage this doctrine and which benchmark judges could follow when reallocating the loss. In common jurisdiction, for example, in, in England, the doctrine of frustration has been discussed as an option to discharge both parties of further performance. But this doctrine is rarely engaged in land law and its threshold is also hard to reach. This complex landscape is raising pressing questions for landlords and tenants all over the world. And as the crisis continues to unfold, having sound answers for these questions will become increasingly important. Rodrigo. Thank you, Ernesto, very much for, for the introduction. That leads us to, to some questions that we want to discuss uh, today. Uh, and the first question is, is more an introduction question, just to give context for, for the next questions. Uh, and is, is referred to, to about the public health measures that have been imposed in each jurisdiction and how they have affected the commercialists. Um, for example, if, uh, if uh, are there many mandatory lockdowns uh, enacted? And if so, to which commercial premises do these mandatory lockdowns apply? And why this question is important because this will determine about the approach that uh, will be legally necessary to answer about how to handle the issue. So um, maybe, Danielle, we can start with uh, with a UK overview of, of this question. Yes, certainly. Um, thank you. And thank you for having me um, on this webinar. Um, so just worth recapping, so April and May, like many other European countries, we were in a um, full lockdown throughout the UK where all but essential shops, um, everything was closed, um, all but essential shops, so supermarkets, chemists, um, where people so buying food and medicines uh, stayed open. Uh, mixing with between households was not permitted. Um, if you sort of fast forward to now, we currently are operating, certainly in England, under the rule of six, so which means um, no mixing of more than six people. And we, like everybody else, have a policy of social distancing, wearing of face masks in public. Uh, I think the important point for the UK it is to remember that each nation within the UK so England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have all got delegated authority to decide on their own response to, to COVID and to the pandemic. And what that has meant is that there are different approaches um, between all four nations. Um, so, for example, 
at the moment. Wales is in currently in a what's been called a firebreak lockdown for 17 days where non-essential shops are closed and people are not allowed to travel out of the area and almost for the first time people are being checked on the border between England and Wales and as you may appreciate there are no borders within the UK. Scotland um, has not really seen anybody return to the offices, whereas in England um, there started to be a drift back into the offices in July and August until that was stopped in September. Um, so for the purposes of today, I think I just need to be looking at England um, and that's what I'm going to do because that's the area that I'm based in. And at the moment, um, across England, we have a three-tier system. Uh, tier one is the most relaxed. Uh, tier three, the tightest restrictions um, getting towards a full lockdown. There is also, regardless of which tier you in, are in at the moment, um, a 10 p.m. curfew for restaurants and bars, uh, obviously having a detrimental impact on the hospitality industry. Um, and in terms of offices at the moment, there is a work from home policy where you're, you can, again, meaning that there are many offices are empty. But at the moment in England, retail does remain open. Thank you very much, Daniel. Um, Chantal? Thank you, Rodrigo, and uh, hello, everyone. Um, for the Netherlands, it's uh, good to start with that we did not have uh, a general lockdown um, in, in March. We, uh, there was, however, a mandatory lockdown for uh, only restaurants and bar, but not such thing as a general lockdown that everyone uh, should, uh, should be at home. However, um, um, the, the bars and restaurants were allowed to reopen in, uh, in June uh, and uh, during the summer as uh, many countries were facing new uh, disease uh, numbers. Uh, figures. Um, so that is why we are currently in the, in the second wave. Um, and uh, until uh, the 13th of March, we see again a mandatory lockdown for restaurants and bars um, and not for uh, the retail stores. So they are still open. Uh, the same applies to offices, logistics, hotels as, as well. Um, however, we have also some, some general rules uh, measures with regard to the to the health measures, uh, so keep the distance, stay at home as much as, much as possible, as, uh, avoid uh, big groups. So that uh, affects indirectly also the other commercial areas um, uh, besides the uh, the bars and restaurants. Currently, we are in a, in between, I guess, because it is expected for the coming two weeks, I guess that there will be additional measures and uh, we are also will be facing curfews and a more general lockdown. But currently only the uh, bars and restaurants are closed at the moment. Thank you, Chantal. So Jax, what can you told us from the Colombian point of view? Thank you very much, Rodrigo. And thank you everyone for joining. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, well, the Colombian situation is a bit different. Colombia had the longest formal lockdown in the world. We were on lockdown for six months. This lockdown began without pretty much any exceptions except for uh, supermarkets and pharmacists. And that lasted for about two months. 
Um, and then from there, additional exceptions were being implemented every two or three weeks, starting with textile manufacturing and construction and going onwards for different sectors of retail. Finally, after six months, retail opened and certain plans for the opening of restaurants began, especially in the, in the main cities. Um, nationwide, we had uh, COVID-free cities, which were on lockdown outside of the city, but were working with certain regularity within the, 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 the city or town. Uh, but the main cities of the country were all affected by these lockdowns. Um, bars and nightclubs continue to be shut down and the government has announced that they will not allow for them to be opened until sometime next year. So they will complete a full year at the very least um, under lockdown, not being able to operate. Um, the retail sector will, of course, uh, have suffered for at least four months of lockdown, excepting, of course, the, the, the essential shops. And now they are operating under certain restrictions, but uh, with reduced uh, hours. And some cities still continue to enact uh, a system called pico y cédula, which is um, restrictions on leaving your house on certain days, depending on the number of your ID. So in some cities, you can only leave your house once a week. And in other cities, you can only leave your house on either even or odd days. And Bogota, which is the, the biggest city in the country, is right now on a valley. It's pretty much open. And other than bars and nightclubs, every commercial um, institution is open. Thank you, Jax. Um, well, what, 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 what can we say about uh, the Chilean situation? Um, as, as, any, as almost all countries, uh, the authority has been ordering mandatory lockdowns since March of this year. Uh, and as a consequence, commercial and industrial buildings uh, were closed with the exception of uh, companies declared as essential services like hospitals and health services in general energy plants, highways, gas stations, banks, supermarkets, pharmacies, etc. All other commercial or industrial companies were not allowed to work on uh, its normal, their normal premises. But on July of this year, the Health Authority enacted a stage-by-stage -stage plan um, regulating the health measures applicable depending on uh, how, uh, how serious is the pandemic in at any, at any given uh, region or district of the country. Uh, so the measures are more or less severe depending on, on that factor, which lead regarding the lockdowns, that lockdowns are more or less severe depending on the state. For example, in stage one, uh, there is a complete lockdown with the exception of the essential services and more advanced stages do not include total lockdowns, but only uh, partial lockdowns or nor not lockdown at all. For example, um, at, at, at this time in Santiago, which is the biggest city of the country, it is not under lockdown, but a lot of other cities in the country are affected by lockdowns. But at any case, uh, the commerce and, and, and offices are allowed to work only um, with a limited capacity, so the situation uh, will not be normal probably until the, the entire situation stops. I mean, when the COVID is not affecting in a substantial way the, all the, the first of the society. 
that being said, we can go ahead to question two in a, in a more um, legal point of view. What legal measures related with commercial risk contracts have been adopted to deal with the effects of COVID-19? We can, we can follow the same order. Yeah, I'm going to just focus on England again. Um, and I think it's, it's largely, as Ernesto um, outlined at the beginning, that really um, legal measures, there's a lot of legal discussion, but what um, we've not seen in England is any, any sort of enactment that really um, fundamentally changes the agreements or contracts between the landlords and the tenants. What you've seen is the government pass a few measures that um, are more about protection. So we have a moratorium that has been imposed on um, evicting commercial tenants from properties as a result of um, non-payment of rent. So um, if you're acting for a landlord, it, it comes across as this almost license not to pay rent because that the biggest threat of taking back premises has has um, has gone. And that has been extended through to the end of this year. Um, it remains to be seen whether that will be extended into 2021. And I should imagine that will depend on how the second wave of um, the pandemic um, pans out. There's also other um, prohibitions on taking um, legal actions such as um, we can send bailiffs in to seize goods um, that has um, been pro prohibited, um, again, uh, for a temporary period. There's also been the government's published um, guidance on a code of conduct for contractual dealings between parties. So encouraging parties not to take advantage of a adverse situation suffered by one contractual party as a result of COVID to take advantage of that to the other contracting party's advantage. Um, as I said, that is a code of conduct. It is guidance. It is not law, uh, but what the government is trying to um, facilitate is a, perhaps a, a, that cooperation. Um, from a property point of view, and I am a, a property disputes lawyer, we're not seeing, we, uh, there are certain tenants that are communicating and are um, coming to consensual agreements. There are other tenants that are using the government moratoriums as a reason not to pay rent and it is very then difficult for landlords to take any action. But what we're not seeing is um, the government has sort of targeted um, as I said, the moratoriums and, and helping tenants out that can't pay rent, but we're not seeing equal measures for landlords um, who perhaps have got finance covenants that the, and banks and who don't own properties outright. So it, it has felt slightly one-sided. Thank you, Danielle. Um, well, for the Netherlands, we have uh, no uh, legal measures that are currently applicable for uh, commercial leases. Um, in addition, those are not um, expected at the moment. Uh, what we do expect that there will be some more um, uh, legal measures with regard to um, uh, payment obligations in general. Uh, so also what you were saying, uh, uh, Daniel, with regard to uh, payment schemes, uh, moratorium, etc. Uh, but not uh, uh, really specifically relating to uh, commercial leases. Um, so that means that in the Netherlands it comes down on, on voluntary agreements and we saw some voluntary understandings between um, um, uh, important market players within the retail sector 
um, making some uh, agreeing on some guidelines how to to handle the the first wave and how to share the pain uh, during the first wave. However, um, it was voluntary first uh, and uh, was to be agreed between uh, individual tenants and landlords. Uh, and furthermore, it's now uh, currently outdated. Um, so we still have to deal with uh, individual um, um, uh, discussions, negotiations between tenant and landlords and do not have uh, legal measures uh, that can give some guidance or some rules. Thank you, Chantal. Jax, what about uh, from Colombia? Thank you, Rodrigo. Well, there's been actually two separate measures that were implemented by executive orders from the presidency. Uh, the first one is from April and it's a moratorium, just as Ernesto described it. Um, it suspends the possibility of executing um, these contracts for non-payment. Um, it is addressed especially for small and medium-sized businesses. And that was in effect from April until the 31st of August. Um, this, of course, generated a first wave of renegotiations and landlords seeking to have some cash flow modified the conditions of the contracts to be able to ensure that they would get some payment during the crisis, especially large retail uh, owners in uh, malls decided to forego the payment of all, either all or a big part of rent in exchange for getting payments for the administrative fees that they were having to incur themselves. Um, this was the first wave of negotiations and they were closed between April and May. Um, in June, the um, uh, presidency released a second decree that allowed tenants to terminate the, unilaterally terminate the uh, lease agreements, paying only one-third of the penalty clauses and if no penalty clause was established, paying one month's rent. This, of course, was enacted after about two months of discussion and during the discussion, the, the measure changed radically because of comments made by re the, the retail sector and the, the largest landowners. So the final form of the, of the decree was very different from what started and that generated a two-month period in which it was very difficult to close on any negotiations regarding individual lease contracts. Um, the worst part of this whole thing is in September, the um, decree from 4th of June, the one that allowed for the termination of contracts, was declared unconstitutional by the Constitutional Court. But this was done through a press release and to this date we do not have the complete decision. So we don't actually know what happens with contracts that were terminated during the um, existence of this decree or what happens to the negotiations that took effect during this period that were based on the idea that the um, tenant could terminate the contract. So that's, that's our general situation right now. And I do believe that this will lead to large-scale litigation regarding these agreements. Thank you, Jax. What happened in Chile, um, like uh, Netherlands, no legal measures related with commercial lease contract have been adopted uh, to deal with the effects of the COVID-19. That is to say, parties and courts must deal with this issue with the existing statutory law that is the civil code. There is no, um, no special law. Uh, there's no executive 
orders or court guidelines on how to manage this. So uh, this problem has been um, managed directly with the by, by the parties by negotiation or um, through litigations uh, using some of the approaches that the civil code give, uh, give to address this problem. Maybe an, an, an direct uh, legal measure that is affecting this uh, commercial lease contracts is a procedural law that was enacted on March of this year, which uh, in order to ensure due process, suspended uh, the litigations evidentiary period and uh, gave judges broad powers to modify the ordinary procedural rules and stages. So in that case, uh, uh, for example, uh, in, in lease litigation, where the landlord is um, asking for the termination of the contract because of non-payment of the rent, such litigations, in such litigations, the judge has the power to suspend the to suspend the litigation until the state of emergency um, is revoked by the government. So in that case, uh, it's like a moratoria de facto because the, 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 the landlord will not be able to evict the tenant until the, the litigation gets to an end, but the litigation will be suspended until the COVID crisis is ended too. So there is a, a kind of moratoria, but it, it wasn't, I think that, it, that, the, it, that that situation was not a goal of the of the legislation, but also it was a, a de facto or side effect solution, and, and, and as, a, as a side effect solution, uh, it has very imperfect effects since it doesn't address the problem in a comprehensive manner. So, so in other words, we don't have a special rule that uh, may help us to to decide uh, how to deal with this situation. So, uh, next slide, please. Uh, considering what our speakers said before, our next question is how do these legal measures relate to existing statutory law? Or if no legal measures are adopted, which existing statutory law provisions are to be at issue? So we had um, back in March the, um, the Coronavirus Act 2020 that um, covered a whole range of things. Um, the power of the government to make decisions, um, the requisitioning of premises as temporary morgues, um, and also included within the uh, Coronavirus Act, the moratorium on taking possession uh, for non-payment of rent. And that has um, that still is uh, a, a live piece of uh, legislation, and there have been um, further statutory instruments um, that have extended the period um, of the moratoriums underneath that act. We've also had the biggest um, piece of legislation in the insolvency area that we've had for probably a about 15 years in the form of the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act, which um, brought in a few new insolvency processes and included a prohibition on winding companies up unless you can prove that the reason that they cannot pay debts has got nothing to do with 
the pandemic, um, which is quite a high threshold. You would have to point out that you'd have to be able to prove that a company was in financial difficulty um, sort of in December, January last year, and the pandemic has had nothing to do whatsoever with the company's demise. And proving that is expensive. So effectively, we have a have a prohibition on taking um, winding companies up. But it's those two uh, are the biggest um, pieces of legislation that we have. Uh, we've also got the um, the common law system that we have, and Ernesto alluded to um, concepts of frustration, which still sit there. Um, I think we might see in 2021 people trying further arguments about frustration, but as Ernesto rightly said, um, that concept has um, never successfully been applied to leases. Um, it isn't stopping people trying, um, but um, we haven't had a, a case that supports that yet. So um, it's really those two major pieces of legislation from, from the English perspective. Thank you, Danielle. Uh, what we see in the Netherlands, um, um, as already stated, we have no uh, legal measures uh, from the government. So uh, we should handle uh, the COVID-19 and uh, tenancy related problems within the existing legal framework. Um, and also, of course, within the uh, contractual uh, agreements, what, uh, what parties agreed uh, in, the, in the lease agreements. So um, if we look at our uh, existing legal framework, there are two uh, provisions that are applicable. Um, the first one is, and I thought you were already referring to it in your introduction, Rodrigo, is the um, uh, principles of the defects. It's a specific uh, tenancy law, and that means that if a tenant cannot um, uh, enjoy um, the leased property as it um, uh, was expecting at the commencement of the lease, uh, then um, such circumstance can qualify as a defect. Um, defects in general can uh, result in, uh, in a claim of the tenant uh, for rent reduction or postponement um, um, under uh, specific circumstances. Um, on the other hand, we have um, our principles of uh, reasonableness and fairness um, and more specific uh, unforeseen circumstances. And we see that a lot of case law is currently focusing on, on that item, the unforeseen circumstances, uh, which means that um, if it cannot be expected um, that a tenant or a landlord um, um, complies with the unchanged agreement given all uh, circumstances uh, of the case, also taking into account uh, the position of the landlord, the tenant, those financial standings, etc. Then a court can um, uh, award a claim um, to modify or to even terminate uh, a lease agreement. Um, and we see a lot of uh, case law currency currently focusing on that uh, and more in specific, that the lease agreement should be changed um, um, uh, with regards to the payment obligations, of course. Um, so that is um, um, the existing legal framework. What we also see is that uh, courts are currently um, a bit reserved to award claims uh, relating to COVID-19 problems. So, for example, to um, uh, award claims regarding to bankruptcy, claims for payment, uh, attachments, etc. 
we see that a lot of Kurds are currently requiring um, um, more uh, information, more substantiation, uh, substantiations of the claiming uh, claiming parties, um, as they are a little bit more reserved to um, um, uh, give decisions that have a lot of impact on the, on the, uh, uh, on the market or specific um, specific uh, firms, for example. So um, that is what what we see right now, uh, but no really specific um, um, tenancy related COVID-19 um, rules that can apply in any case. So it, it still remains a question of individual cases, cases, individual assessments, um, and uh, given all circumstances of the case. Thank you, Chantal. Uh, Jax? Thank you again, Rodrigo. Well, the, the situation in Colombia is not that dissimilar to what Chantal just explained. There are three main institutions that are in play. The first one is, of course, force majeure, which we believe only or generally only applies to the obligation of the landlord to make available the asset for the intended use. So we believe that tenants cannot allegate that they have not been able to use the, 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 um, the real estate asset for its intended purpose as a means to claim um, non-compliance of the contract by the landlord. On the other hand, we don't believe that generally the tenant can use force majeure to avoid payment of due rent. Uh, because according to the, the legal standard in, in, in Colombia, they would have to prove that pandemic has effectively made them unable to actually pay, that it has either eliminated all their liquid assets or closed the banking system, for example, which has not happened. So we don't believe that force majeure is applicable to tenants. Um, on the other hand, there is an institution of reestablishment of the economic balance of the contract by judiciary means, which hasn't begun to happen yet because long-term measures haven't been taken by any of the players in the market, but it is something that might happen in the future. The, the, uh, either party can request from a judge the reestablishment of the economic balance and the setting of new terms and conditions if they cannot reach a direct arrangement. This is, of course, a judiciary procedure, which takes a very, very long time in Colombia. And finally, the, the third institution that I think will come into play um, very quickly and, and, and will have a lot to do with the judicial resolution of these contracts is the um, elements of formation of the contracts. We, I believe that due to the inconstitutionality of the decree that allowed for early termination of the contracts, the new contracts that were made, the new arrangements that were made, may come into may come into question because the will of the parties was based on an error. They were based on a on a regulation that will no longer exist, or actually never existed because of it, its inconstitutional beginnings. So, if we came to an arrangement and reduced rain, uh, rent based on the fact that you could terminate the contract early. And it just so happens that you could not ter terminate that contract because the law that allowed for it was not constitutional. Then what happens to the arranged contract? And I think that that will come into play for arbitration tribunals and uh, civil litigation in the near future. Uh, thank you, Jax. Um, what about in Chile? Uh, I guess that the uh, situation in Chile is very similar uh, than the situation that was 
explained by Chantal and Jax. Um, since no legal mission related with real property commercial lease contract have been adopted, the parties and courts shall find the solution in the civil code. Uh, however, um, the civil code does not expressly address the issue. Um, obviously, the civil code doesn't say anything about pandemics or situation uh, or similar situation. So um, uh, we can analyze the matter following different approaches, different legal theories that can be um, can be found uh, in the existing legal framework. Um, one of, of these approaches is the is a solution based on a legal warranty or the defect of of, of the illicit premises. Uh, civil code establishes that the landlord is obliged to allow the tenant the normal or peaceful use of the listed premises, taking, in, taking into consideration the utility or use of the premises that the parties contemplated at the time the contract was agreed. So what happens when the tenant cannot make normal use of the premises, considering the utility or purpose that the parties in the contract took into account? But I, I would say that the, that the more inter interesting question is, what happened with, when such impossibility is caused by an external event, that is to say government order restrictions or the general effects of the pandemics? Does such uh, inability to use the premises amount to a breach of the legal guarantee owed by the landlord? And in that case, is the tenant obligated to pay the rent. This approach may be uh, supported by some case law, uh, which uh, supports a, a more neutral notion of uh, contractual of contractual breach, uh, and also that case law is somehow supported by a significant part of the academic world, so to speak. But there is no case law that expressly addresses this issue. And also, uh, this neutral notion of breach of contract is not fully established in Chilean case law or in general in the theory of the Chilean private law. So I think that this is a good solution, but um, it's not entirely supported supported by the real world law because there, because as long as I know, there is no there is no uh, landmark decision that has been made on on this case expressly. Uh, on, a, on a COVID case. Other solution could be a solution based on the revox istantibut principle. That is to say that um, a party has a duty to bear the negative consequence. Uh, sorry, no party has the duty to bear the negative consequence of a solution impossible to foresee at the time of the at the time when the lease was negotiated and agreed. But although this uh, approach uh, may be persuasive. A big problem of this approach is that this, um, that this theory that in Spanish is called Teoría de Imprevisión is, is not supported by case law, except in some isolated and specific cases, and is not expressly endorsed by the civil code. So it's more an academic solution, rather a, a practical solution. Another approach is, uh, the is a solution based on the principle that promise must be kept. That is to say, if there is no um, no provision in the contract allowing the tenant to suspend payment in case, in case of um, this unforeseen event, the tenant should continue paying the, 
the rent as nothing uh, as nothing happened. This idea makes sense considering that the pact that that this principle that is the Pacta Sunt Servanda uh, is the foundation of the Chilean civil uh, the Chilean civil law. But uh, on the other hand, we have to say if the if if nothing was agreed in in the contract, that doesn't necessarily means that the tenant is obliged to pay for rent. That only means that the party says nothing on that. And if the party says nothing on that and the, and the law says nothing on that, it's not very obvious that the tenant is obliged to pay fully the rent, even if the tenant cannot use the premises. Ernesto, uh, I think that, that you, you may have very good insights on that point. I think the, the experience we're discussing here highlights some very important difference between the way civil jurisdictions and the common law deal with unforeseen circumstances. In England, it is probably unlikely that the doctrine of frustration would apply. But if it applies, it would just discharge their obligations. The judge would not redraft the contract. Well, in the Netherlands and in Colombia, and the scholarly opinions you are discussing from Chile, it is an option that the judge will reallocate or redraft the contract. And this sounds like a very nice option, it's a way out to the problem, but it's not obvious why, what criteria the judges should follow when redrafting, uh, for example, a commercial lease contract. And there's also, it's not clear that judges are in a good position to do this. What is their experience of commercial life? Why can they replace the will of the parties, as mentioned by Jacks, in connection of the risks allocated to each of them or the business they are doing. So if this continues and these doctrines are put to the test, I think we will see massive developments, especially in civil jurisdictions on this field. Thank you, Ernesto. Thank you very much. So going to our our experience on 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 these kind of problems, the question would be what you would advise to tenants and landlords um, in the light of the current legislation of your jurisdiction? Well, it's really difficult. Um, and, you know, no, this, this situation isn't of anybody's doing. It's nobody's fault. Um, and so, you know, it's unfortunate that um, tenants you know, have struggled, businesses are struggling um, as a result of the pandemic. It's not necessarily through any fault of their own, but likewise, Landlords are also um, businesses. They often um, invest in property on behalf of pension funds, um, other investments for charities, um, and they have got obligations as well. And so I think it, um, we've seen a lot of the consensual um, agreements um, trying to navigate the way through. But also we're now starting to see landlords taking court action for rent arrears and for debts. Um, and that's because there are in the UK a number of tenants um, who are well-funded, but are using the moratoriums as a reason to hold on to cash reserves and only releasing the rent um, when they are sued. So we're having to take um, further action. Um, in terms of um, leases that are being negotiated at the moment, there's a rise of uh, requests for what are called COVID clauses, such that if there is another lockdown or a tenant is legally, is legally prohibited from opening 
um, particularly in the retail sector or the hospitality sector, there is a rent suspension clause put in. And that's really to, to get around the fact, as Nesto said, frustration doesn't work in England for leases because it results in a discharge as opposed to uh, sorry, a total discharge of the lease, as opposed to just the discharge of the obligation to pay rent. So we are seeing people trying to negotiate that into the lease contract. Um, also seeing a turn, uh, a switch to turnover rents, and that is um, so um, rent is paid on the amount of turnover through that particular store. Obviously, quite complicated rent agreements, um, but that again is a reflection of um, fluctuating trade as a result of um, the, the pandemic. Yes, I think the, the UK clauses and the contractual uh, arrangements are already introduced in the Netherlands as well, um, because we are currently facing with um, a, a lot of uh, COVID clauses uh, that I think you are drafted, uh, drafted by you uh, or uh, uh, one of your colleagues. Um, uh, so um, we see COVID clauses, um, including that um, uh, a lockdown or uh, indirect effects or direct effects of a lockdown. Also, for example, a decline of visitors um, uh, will or, or will not uh, constitute a, a defect, for example, and will or will not uh, give a right to a tenant to uh, to a rent reduction. So that is when uh, when drafting and uh, renegotiating uh, new leases. We also see uh, uh, discussions uh, pending with regard to uh, to turnover rent uh, as well. Furthermore, what what we see is um, that um, or what my advice would be for for landlords in this case that given also the principles of reasonableness and fairness. Um, don't be too reluctant when entering into negotiations with your with your tenants, because um, uh, it might be used against you um, uh, when you go to court. Go uh, and enter into negotiations with your tenant, uh, and try and and um, reconsider whether it's something uh, you can ask in return. For example, lease continuation, or uh, maybe you need an approval for a renovation in the long term. Well, this could be your moment to renegotiate such uh, elements. When it comes to existing leases and, and drafting, uh, renegotiating um, um, specific COVID clauses, I would also advise to um, make very clear um, what will be the period of um, the, uh, the deviating terms. Because what we see now is that um, there were, for example, during the first wave, um, there were a lot of uh, riders and additional agreements um, uh, made between parties. Uh, but all, uh, every, everything and everyone uh, was totally in the understanding and assuming that there would only be one wave. Um, and uh, it will take uh, two or three months and after that there will be a recovery and everything will go um, on a normal basis. But what we see now is that the problems last longer and uh, those initial agreements that were made between a tenant and landlord were not uh, sufficient anymore. So uh, and new renegotiations were, were needed. So um, I would suggest to, to 
give some more um, um, objective indicators when a deviating provision will apply and when it will be over. Uh, so it might be uh, um, uh, possible to use it when there will be a third wave or maybe a fourth wave as well. Thank you, Chantal. Uh, Jax, would you advise to tell us some words? Yes, of course. Well, uh, our main problem in Colombia has been uh, unpredictability of the applicable law. And this has caused for delays in negotiations um, that have caused more harm than anything else. So my main advice, um, at least for the Colombian jurisdiction, is contrary to what normally would be the advice for doing business, and it is do not attempt to think long term. We need to establish um, quick solutions, and where I've seen negotiations fail is when one, either one or both parties try to incorporate a clause that states what will happen during the next wave. And because of the unpredictability of what will be the applicable law of how impacted will either of the parties be, um, they are very reluctant to enter into any arrangements that modify the basis of the contract. So what I found um, what I found to be more effective is to negotiate in two or three month tranches. What will happen from now until December? What will happen from December until February, depending on how it goes on? Especially in the retail sector, most retailers are concerned that the... Um, Christmas season, which is the, the, the strongest season of the year, of course, will be worse than they originally expected. And that will change their perspectives from trying to maintain lower costs but maintain the contracts um, to terminating as many contracts as they can possibly terminate without incurring in excessive costs. And trying to force them into a negotiation that will keep them bound to the contract further than January or February has turned into an impossible obstacle to pass. So what we've come to the conclusion is negotiate in shorter tranches, do not attempt to modify the basis of the contract, um, base your decisions both on cash flow and um, the idea that we all have to bear the burden, and this is a, a, a sentence that I repeat and repeat and repeat in during these negotiations, we all have to bear the burden. And of course, the final thing is Keep in mind the nature of the opposing party during a negotiation. An institutional landowner is very different than a person that has two or three uh, assets and lives off of the rent. And your expectations cannot be the same from both of them. Um, so when you have a portfolio of assets, you have to allocate different resources depending on what your opposing party will require. A person that lives off a single rent will not ever permit for all rent to be foregone. Uh, an institutional owner will probably be more flexible and allow in exchange for longer lease terms and some cash flow during the pandemic to diminish and lose money on rents during a longer period. So just when you go into these negotiations, keep that th those facts in mind and don't, don't be over ambitious in reformulating the contracts towards the future. Think of two or three month tranches. And if you have to renegotiate and renegotiate and renegotiate, that is just the, the, the current situation and the fluidity of the pandemic that makes it happen that way. Um, thank you, Jax. Well, from the Chilean side, I, I would say a, a very quick advice. 
uh, as I said before, uh, the law is not is, is is not totally clear on this point. Although I think that the solution could be found on the on the legal text, but as the solution um, uh, as the solution is not clear, and also um, considering that uh, as long as I know there is there is not a landmark case, uh, a landmark COVID case uh, regarding lease contracts, I would say that uh, a negotiation will be will be the the, the best uh, the best option. Uh, rather than to be very entrenched on, on one position, that is to say, pay nothing or, or pay in full. Um, I think that the, the reasonable and fairness principles underlies um, the, the Chilean private law, uh, allow some support, uh, uh, negotiations um, uh, and, and agreements on, on that point, uh, especially considering that the, the very text of the law says that then that um, that the tenant uh, has the right to use the um, the listed premises uh, for the utility that the parties declared and have in mind at the time of the execution of the contract. So I think that that is a good um, it's a good um, it's a good argument. Also on the other side, I think that it's not very easy to conclude that uh, the, the tenant has the right to pay nothing. I mean, the, both arguments have some some kind of support on the law. Um, so, so I think that in, in this situation and uh, while there is no legal, special legal measures enacted on that point, the best alternative will be always to, to get an agreement, especially in cases of, of long-term long contracts. Although, um, as, as always happens in, in any case, uh, each, um, each uh, case should be analyzed on its merits. Uh, and, and precisely on that point, uh, I would say that the advice to, to tenants and landlords, not, not regarding uh, contracts in execution, uh, but contracts being negotiated right now, it's obviously to include a provision uh, regulating this point, because uh, it's, it's very easy to foresee that the situation will not be normalized until uh, a good deal of month, maybe uh, the entire next year we'll, we will be suffering this this pandemic. Well, we have a final a final question uh, number five. Um, we are we are running out of time, so um, so we, we can go very very quickly on that question. Uh, what problems do you expect to arise in the future month, and uh, are legis legislative or administrative solutions or fixed guidelines from courts expected? We can we can go very quickly on this question since I think that. The, the, the topic has been covered in, in, in our previous answers. Uh, yeah, so just really then by way of summary, um, the problems I expect to see are more court action, um, lots of disagreements about um, uh, new leases and what terms should be in that and whether parties who are under agreements for lease um, can get out of them. Um, do I think that there's going to be legis legislative or administrative solutions? Not necessarily, no. I don't think I can see the government intervening into private contracts any further than it's done by the moratoriums. Um, I think the moratoriums might be extended if this second wave continues. Um, but otherwise, I think we're going to see judicial interpretation of the 
the contractual code of conduct that I mentioned that the government pushed out and uh, maybe penalising parties on costs if they haven't had respect um, for particular um, difficulties faced by the parties as a result of COVID. Yes, um, to summarise, um, what we see in the Netherlands is a case law on a very uh, casuistic uh, level. Um, and as um, also the assessment is based on specific circumstances of the case, uh, I think uh, it's difficult to, to state now that uh, some general rules can be derived from, uh, from case law already. Uh, however, I do think that uh, within uh, some time and uh, if there is more case law, um, there will be some uh, more guidelines from uh, courts uh, how to, um, well, first, if uh, the COVID um, uh, problems uh, are, are considered to be a defect um, and how to um, share the pain between the landlords and, 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 and tenants in general. Um, and of course, it also can deviate those general guidelines uh, based on specific uh, specific circumstances. Um, furthermore, I don't expect that there will be any um, any governmental rules or regulations. Um, so uh, it it will come down or on the individual agreements between tenants and landlords um, and uh, court decisions. I also think that uh, within the coming year there will be a lot of uh, bankruptcy issues uh, and insolvency issues as well uh, and that will of course also affect the uh, financial standings uh, of landlords and their obligations uh, towards their bank and their financiers uh, as well so I think there will be a lot of indirect consequences um, um, be fit that we will face in, uh, in the coming uh, in the coming uh, years. So on the Colombian case, I sure hope that there are no further legislative or administrative solutions. They have done more more harm than good, and hopefully we'll be able to continue to to, to handle matters with uh, contractual provisions and renegotiations. Guidelines from courts, I expect them to take years. Um, so we'll probably have some decisions on arbitration tribunals uh, within the next... 12 to 18 months that might bring some light into what the final solutions will be from um, civil courts, which will take for final decisions for five years. Um, what problems do we expect in the following months? I think the biggest hurdle will be the Christmas season, depending on how um, the economy behaves during December and January. The problems will be different if the if the retail sector is hit harder than expected, then um, probably we'll have a lot of mandatory terminations and broad-scale litigation if the Christmas season isn't as bad as expected or a little bit better, then we will probably not have this litigation until probably mid-2021 and on a much lower scale. So I think that that's where the turning point is going to be. That is for commercial assets, the office real estate market is severely damaged in Colombia. There is over offer, there will be a drop in prices and there will be a lot of foreclosures um, and insolvency issues with especially um, landlords that will not be able to comply with their obligations. And that, that I expect that sector of the market to be the hardest hit 
um, from here onwards and the reduction of construction in this segment will be forthcoming. Thank you, Jax. Um, from the Chilean side, I would say that um, even if even if this is a very concrete, practical, and real-life problem, the the government authority uh, does not include the, the the commercial lease problem into into the um, into its priorities. Priority of the government had been focused on 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 the aid to direct aid to people rather rather to to in, to get involved on on these contracts however obviously uh, some some kind of measures have been enacted regarding the supporting of of companies especially mid-sized or small companies some tax measures or, or, or commercial measures but but measures that maybe they have an indirect and direct effect effect over the contracts rather a, a direct solution uh, like this like an emergency legislation that has been enacted um, uh, in, in other countries. Uh, maybe um, if, if the concrete effects or the aggregate effects of the pandemics uh, continue in, in, a, in a significant significant degree next year, uh, maybe a legislative or administrative solution can be expected. I think that could be a legislative rather than administrative solution because uh, moratoria or suspension of payment or or, or or similar or likewise solutions involves the the modification or, or or intervention on contracts and and such kind of measures should could also should could only be taken on legis legislative basis. So um, we we will have to see. Additionally, another another challenge will be the work overload that courts will have. Uh, after the state of the emergency uh, finished, as I said before, uh, a lot of litigation has been suspended. Um, so when the suspensions are over, a lot of work, uh, of course, could be expected, which also will affect disputes between landlords and, and tenants. So I would say regarding that point that um, if, the, if the manual value or, or the complexity of the case uh, it, 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 it's it's enough big. This kind of dispute sh should be settled by arbitration rather than ordinary courts in order to get a, a faster and, and, and easier managing instead of the of the more cumbersome management that ordinary courts could give to to these kind of cases. Ernesto, do you have some some final remarks on this question and the future? Very briefly. I expect that moratoriums will be extended. Second, that in civilian jurisdictions that have general doctrines de dealing with unforeseen circumstances, some cases will emerge. And in those civilian jurisdictions that do not have this kind of doctrines, like Chile, this might be a final push for them to enact them or to be developed by case law. Well, thank you everybody for joining us in this, in this webinar. Um, should any should anyone have have some question uh, or want to discuss uh, some matter in a deeper way, uh, you can reach us in the contact information. So thank you, uh, Ernesto, Jack, Chantal, Daniel, for your time and, and for joining and participating in this activity. And and also thank you very much to all the attendees.
for your time and uh, your interest in, in this very relevant discussion.